Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These are very familiar verses to those that are familiar with the Scriptures. And, and uh, I remember I became a Christian in 2012. And as a 24-year-old man, reading things like this for the very first time as a child of God, as a grown man, never read anything like this before, and God just took His Word and pierced my heart, and I knew without a shadow of a doubt, this is exactly what God not only wants us to do, but wants me to do. And by the grace of God, I've purposed my heart to seek to obey uh, what we're going to be sharing this morning. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, if you look with me there, if you have a Bible, if not, uh, if you listen, I'll try and uh, speak as clearly as possible. If I'm speaking a little bit louder than normal, is because uh, we have a friend that um, is, is he finds it a bit hard to hear. So this is why I'm lifting up my voice a little bit uh, louder than normal. Um, but if you follow with me there in the scriptures, in verses 1 and 2, and it says this, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now look at verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed... By the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so this passage here, in an absolute nutshell, and if I was to summarize this, this portion of Scripture, and I've titled this, Once and for All Surrender. Once and for all, surrender. And, I'll, uh, and I'll, I'll mention why I've, I've titled it Once and for All, Surrender a little bit later on. But he begins there by saying to these Christians, to this, in this epistle, this letter uh, to the Romans, uh, he says, I, I, I beseech you, he says, I am inviting you, I am imploring you, I am I'm wanting to encourage you in this way, he says, I beseech you therefore, and so every time, it's been said many times before, but every time you read therefore in the Bible, ask the question, why is therefore therefore, <laughs> alright, and it's therefore because of what was previously mentioned, and we're going to touch on that a little bit later on, so he's saying, therefore, on what I have just mentioned prior to this, on this basis, he says, brethren, brethren. And so here he has addressed this particularly to brethren. And so those that are brethren understand why Paul is appealing by the very reason that he was, that he had mentioned a few verses earlier, and we're going to touch on it. But he says to the brethren, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of 
God. By the tender compassion of God. He says that ye present your bodies. And the idea of presenting something is, in other words, it's, it's the concept of make good the commitment. Make it good. You, you, you're presenting something, now make it good. Go through with it and do it. And he says, present your bodies, specifically your bodies, a living sacrifice. Not just a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy this is speaking of something that is pure, undefiled, sacred, and consecrated, set apart. It says holy and acceptable. Something that is agreeable to God. Something that is well-pleasing to the Lord. Holy, acceptable unto God. Unto God. Now, one thing we see in the Bible is that there's, an, there's often an encouragement that everything we do must be determined and ought to be determined in one way or another that not to be accepted by man and not to be seeking after the approval of man, but that we are to weigh up everything and do all things in such a way that is acceptable, that is pleasing to God, regardless what man thinks. And so he brings the standard saying, in essence, with everything I'm encouraging you here, let it be acceptable unto God. And then he uses this, this phrase here, he says, which is your reasonable Service. That word reasonable is, is, is kind of the same word we have in our modern day English that's logical. In encouraging them to, to do this, to present their bodies, and then he says this phrase, he says, which is your reasonable service. And reasonable is the same, we use the same English word for logical. He says it's only logical and it's rational. This is the idea behind this word by definition, it is rational. And so on the basis of this, it's only logical, it's only rational that you would present your bodies to be a living sacrifice. And then he goes on, and be not conformed to this world. The idea of conformed is to, uh, we, think of, we think about the word fashion, right? And this is the idea behind the word. It's the idea of fashion and you and I know in the world there are many fashions and when a fashion comes out what do you start seeing you start seeing people following the fashion and so this is the idea behind the word conformed don't follow the fashion as it was and it's not just talking about um, you know some so much even though it includes it so much uh, you know, what's, what you wear and how, you, how you, you, your appearance is and so on and so forth. But in a whole collective and general sense, anything that is characterized by the world, he says, don't follow that fashion that's born of the world. He says, but rather, instead of that, I want you, brethren, again, children of God, to be transformed. And it's the idea of being transfigured, it's, it's the word that we get in the English for metamorphosis. 
metamorphosis. How do you pronounce it? I struggle to pronounce it. Metamorphosis. And he's saying this transformation. I don't want you to follow the fashion of the world. Don't follow that. He says, I want you to be transformed, to be transfigured, something very evident, something unmistakable, something that, uh, that, that you, you be changed. He says, how? By the renewing of your mind. And the idea of renewing is the idea of renovation, of a renovation. And so you and I are familiar with what it means uh, to renovate. And we, it's always or often in connection with a house. We can understand it in that terms with a house. We have an old house and someone wants to renovate that house. And what do they do? Even though the existing structure is there, they just make it new. And they'll do, repaint it or they'll break down some walls or they'll fix something that needs to be fixed. And this is the idea of renovating. It's something very simple. And he's saying, I don't want you to follow after, to go after, to fashion yourself, to follow the fashion of the world. I don't want you to look like that. I want you to be changed and to renovate your mind. You know why? Because this mind has been thoroughly polluted by thoughts and philosophies and things that are not pleasing to God and the pollution that has filled our minds and, and affected our minds gears us towards following the fashion of the world. But God doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to renovate it. Don't leave it there. Renovate it. And he says, that ye may prove. And so he says, in other words, it's, it's assumed that if, if this is not done, then you are going to lack in being able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so the message here this morning is a once and for all surrender, and I want to get straight into it. This was the basic definition going through the passage, what I was sharing with you just then. But now I want to get straight into it, and let's seek to make application and see furthermore, what is the Bible in this portion of Scripture saying? Just tell me straight out, what does this mean? And first, where I want to start is where the verse starts. And the verse starts, he is pleading with the brethren on a particular basis. And he says, I am beseech you, I am imploring you by the mercies of God. What are the mercies of God that the Bible here is talking about? Because he's using this as the basis to say on this basis. And he goes on to list everything else in that verse and in the verse following. And he says, on the basis of the mercy of God, present your bodies and so forth. And in simplicity, what it's speaking about here is what he's bringing out is salvation. On the basis of salvation. Now, we can turn there if you like. I don't want you to lose the spot here, but if, if you listen to me here, and if you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to read 
from Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. You can listen or you can turn there if you like. And Titus chapter 3 from verse 3 says this. I'm going to start to read, so it's okay if you're not there yet. He says, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But verse 4 says, But after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regenerating, of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, this renovating that takes place by the Holy Ghost, which is shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life and what this mercies of God is in connection with is being saved that by the mercy of God we are saved and this is why he's talking to the brethren and he's talking to them like you have already received this this salvation Ephesians chapter 2 says it this way in verse 4 and 5 but God who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, made us alive together with Christ, by grace ye are saved. And this is what in the previous chapter to Romans chapter 12, this is what Romans chapter 11 is stating, how when the Jews rejected Jesus, that he set the Jews aside who God chose to be the chosen people of God, and they rejected Jesus, they rejected the Messiah, and so this salvation that had come to the Jews, God says, I'm going to lay Israel aside and this salvation that was for the Jews, now I am going to send to the Gentiles. Look with me in just the previous chapter in Romans chapter 11. And I believe directly when it's talking about the mercies of God, it's referring to what, what he just mentioned in the previous verses. And he says from verse 30, he says, For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet have now obtained, what's that word? Mercy through their unbelief, through the unbelief of Israel. Even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. Notice verse 32, For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that ye might have mercy, that He might have, excuse me, mercy upon all. And that's what God decided. And God decided, you know what? 
Salvation is not just for the Jews. I am going to have mercy upon whom I want to have mercy. And God decided that it's not just the Jews that needed the mercy of God. It's the Gentiles, that's you and I, Gentiles, uh, anyone that is not a Jew. And he says, everyone is in unbelief and everyone needs the mercy of God. And so the very first step before you seek to apply the rest of those two verses in Romans chapter 12 is you must be saved. That's where it begins. There is no point in presenting your body if God does not yet first have your soul and your soul is dead in sin until you are saved from your sin. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that it's not by any works that we can do to obtain the mercy of God. It's purely on the basis of God offering His mercy because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. He became sin for us. He became the sacrifice for sin who knew no sin. Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus, the sinless one, came into the world to save you and I. And this is the mercies of God that is speaking about. You know, God this morning desires to offer His mercy to you and not His justice. I want you to think about that. God this morning is offering you His mercy and not His justice. Justice is simply the consequence, the right consequence for our actions. Sam mentioned in Romans chapter 6 about the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, mercy, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And the only way to obtain the mercy of God upon your life is if you would come to Jesus to be saved from your sin. And He will never force you to Himself. But I tell you what, He lifts up His love and He wants that love to draw you to Him because the Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, anyone that believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that's what God desires to give to the world because he concluded that the whole world is in unbelief. And this is what John chapter 3 speaks about. This is even what Romans chapter 3 speaks about a few chapters before this, where God tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 talks about how the Gentiles have sinned. Romans chapter 2 talks about how the Jews have sinned. And God is simply concluding in Romans chapter 3 that everyone has sinned. And everyone is in need of the mercy of God. And everyone is in need of forgiveness of sins. So that's why a Savior came into the world. 
so that we would have the mercy of God. I want to ask you this, have you tasted of that mercy yet? Or have you only ever heard about that mercy? Because God will never force that mercy upon you, but He invites you to it. And He has called, excuse me, called all men everywhere to what the Bible, uh, Bible calls repentance. To repent from our sin and to turn and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who came all the way from heaven to, and suffered and died on a cross when He didn't have to, for your sin and my sin when He didn't have to, so that He could save us from it. And the Bible says that He finished it. He paid for sin once and for all that we would be saved. And it's very simple. Whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the kind of belief that the Bible talks about is not a half-hearted belief. The kind of belief that the Bible's talking about is not, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in this too. It's a single-focused, soul-placing of my faith in Jesus and Jesus only. And so therefore, it cannot be Jesus plus anyone else. And it cannot be Jesus plus anything else. It cannot be, I'm just going to tack Jesus on to my many other gods, like some religions say. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. And he says, if you would come to him, the only one that died for the sins of the world, the only one that died for your sins, the only one that rose himself from the dead, this Jesus, he says, if you would come and put your faith in him, you will not perish, but you have everlasting life. That's how simple it is. But there are some people that think they're okay and go about comparing themselves with others and saying, well, I'm not like that. And the Bible gives us an example of a religious man versus a man who knew he was a sinner in Luke chapter 18. Let's turn to Luke chapter 18 and I want us to see this. And in Luke chapter 18, what this simply does here is it solidifies amongst many other areas in Scripture. Luke chapter 18. And so we'll look at... Let's read from uh, verse 9. And it says there, about a, a parable that the Lord is speaking, and He's speaking, look at this, and this parable, and He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So in other words, now I'm going to give you this story, now I'm going to give you this illustration to paint the picture so you do not miss the point of what God sees versus what man sees. And so you who are trusting in yourselves that you are right compared to someone else who's not right, I'm not like so-and-so, God is saying, I want you to get this. And he goes on to say there was two men 
that went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. This was a religious teacher of the day. And another a publican. This was a tax collector of the day. And publicans were known as sinners. Like, I mean sinners. Because they were, gen in generally speaking, corrupt. And he goes on in verse 11. And the Pharisee stood and prayed. Look at these words. Thus with himself. Not to God. His prayers didn't reach heaven. He was just praying to himself. And he says, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. He's now pointing to the other man that was there. He says, I fast twice in a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But look at verse 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be, what's that word? Merciful to me, a sinner. And look at the conclusion. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. In other words, he was made right before God rather than the other who thought he was already right with God. He says, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. Anyone that lifts himself up to think he's okay, God's going to put him down. He says, And he that humbleth himself, like that publican, like that sinner, shall be exalted. Exalted how? God be merciful to me, a sinner. And there is no point saying, well, I'm not like him and I don't take drugs and I don't do this and I'm not like that and I don't do what they do and I've never murdered anyone and I've never raped anyone and I've never molested anyone and I've never stolen anything and I've never this and I've never that and I've never that. As a matter of fact, I do good things. You know what God says about that? It counts for nothing in his eyes. And in that day, I say, especially in that day when we stand before the judge of all the earth, as many will, thinking that they were okay with God, and God is going to say to them, like it says in Matthew chapter 7, I never knew you. These ones were pleading that they preached in the name of Jesus, that they cast out devils in the name of Jesus, that they did many wonderful works in the name of the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ in the day of judgment, he says, I'll profess unto them, I am going to tell them, I never knew you. And he goes on to say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. You know why? Because God has already set the way of mercy. God has already set the way to be made right with Him. It's through the one who died for our sins because we could never pay for our sins. And this is why Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say that it's by grace we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast like this man is doing right here. I fast, I this, I that. <coughs> Pardon me. Romans chapter 10. I want us to see Romans chapter 10. And I really want us to get this first step because there's no point in moving on with the rest of these two verses in Romans 12 if we don't have this first step. 
And he says in Romans chapter 10, this is Paul the Apostle's heart for the children of Israel. And he says in verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. Look at verse 3 now and don't miss this. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Just like that Pharisee, many people on earth are trying to establish their own righteousness, their own good works, their own basis as to hope to have some sort of favor or merit from God. But God is not, God tells us in Romans chapter 3 that there is none righteous. No, not one. And what Romans chapter 10 in essence is teaching us that we cannot go about to establish our own righteousness. This is what the Bible would call self-righteousness, which is an abomination in the sight of God. But God would rather us to submit ourselves to the righteousness of God. And practically, what does that mean in the next verse? It connects it with Christ Jesus who fulfilled the law. The perfect righteousness is found in Jesus. And the only way that we could be seen in the eyes of God, that we could be justified, that we could obtain the mercies of God is only by Jesus Christ. And this salvation has come to us. And if you are not saved here this morning, I want to encourage you, that's where it begins. You can come to Jesus just like this publican in Luke chapter 18. He knows our sin and how foolish at times when we don't acknowledge what He already knows. And we deceive ourselves to think it's all good because the philosophy of the world teaches you to live without regret. But God is saying, no, you need to come to that place of understanding that you are a sinner that has earned the wages of death. And it's not until you acknowledge this, well, only then you can have the mercies of God, which is eternal life, forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I want you to think about that this morning. Would you come to Jesus this morning and settle it once and for all? But you cannot have your sin and the Savior. You cannot have your way and God's way. You cannot come to God and say, I'll take Jesus on board with everything else I believe. No. It's in Jesus and Jesus only. And if you would come this morning and submit yourself to the righteousness of God, that you would submit yourself to Jesus, that you would turn to Jesus and put your faith in Him, then you will have mercy. You will have mercy. Don't be like the Pharisee, that in comparing yourself to someone else, I'm not as bad as... Well, guess what? You're a sinner just like so-and-so. And maybe we may not sin 
alike, but we all alike are sinners. And that's why God says, all are under unbelief. All are condemned. All have sinned and come short of my glory. Therefore, all need my mercy. And I want to encourage you. You can flee from that wrath to come. And you can flee to the mercy of God that's extended to you this morning to be saved from your sin. Would you come to Jesus to save you from your sin? But what about... Don't worry about what about so-and-so. You can't make the decision for so-and-so. And they can't make the decision for you. Every one of us is going to give an account of ourselves to God. And it's a personal decision that you individually must make before God because you alone are going to stand before God in that day of judgment. What will you do with the mercy of God through Jesus extended to you today? Would you come to Jesus to be saved? You can make that decision even as I'm speaking right now that you'd say, God, be merciful to me. A sinner made that decision in 2012. I heard the gospel in a very more summarized version than what I'm sharing with you this morning. All I heard is what Jesus did on that cross, He did for me. And there's nothing I could do to add or take away from what Jesus did on the cross. He did it on His own and He finished it. The only thing I can do is give Him my life and receive Him as my Saviour. And that was it. That was the simple gospel that I heard. And you didn't have to convince me of my sin. I knew I was guilty in the sight of God. <coughs> and the one thought that I was wrestling with was this. Would God save someone like me? And He did. And He saved me. He showed me mercy when I deserved justice. He showed me mercy when I was condemned. He showed me mercy when all I earned was death. He showed me mercy. And this is why I know what Romans chapter 12 is talking about where, where, where the apostle is pleading with the people. I beseech you, I'm begging you, I implore you, I'm inviting you on the basis of the mercy of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God. And so if you haven't yet come to be saved from your sin, I want to encourage you, you can make that decision where you can come before God. Even now, God, I know you could see everything and I know you know everything. You even know the very sins that I've forgotten. And God, would you be merciful to me? A sinner. And God says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you come to Jesus, the Bible teaches us, He will not cast you out. Would you come to Him to be saved? That's the very first step. And the very second one now, as it continues, it goes hand in hand. It's very hard to separate and it begins with salvation, but this next, this next point I want to I labor on for the rest of the time here is surrender. Surrender. 
And it's almost one in the same thing when you're coming to be saved. In essence, I am surrendering myself. I am submitting myself to the, to the righteousness of God. I need to be saved from my sin. I'm not coming with nothing in my hands. I bring simply to the cross I cling like the hymn says. I have nothing to offer God and I'm coming with my hands up to be saved, to submit myself to the righteousness of God. This is salvation. And in the same token, it automatically follows that God desires of us to be fully surrendered. You know that posture that we came before Jesus to be saved, God wants us to maintain that posture of absolute surrender. I say absolute surrender. It's a once and for all surrender. And he goes on to say in Romans chapter 12, that ye present your bodies. The idea of presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, now this connects the thought with the idea of offering, with the idea of offerings. Now offerings, in terms of offering unto the Lord, uh, is pictured by the sacrifices that they used to make in the Old Testament. Now when they wanted to offer something unto the Lord, oftentimes, not in every case, but in most cases, it was a... It was a, an animal offering. It was, a, it was something that was, that was spotless. It was something that was, uh, uh, that was, in essence, cost them. It cost them. It was they, they were not just giving the leftovers. They were giving uh, with all their heart. And God had ordained a system of offering that was acceptable in His sight. And what they would do is they, were, they would offer an animal to the Lord. They would offer a bullock or a lamb, or whatever, depending on what the offering was for, determined what the offering was, but they simply made an offering, they'd bring it to the priest, and then the priest would, uh, would pretty much slay the offering, and they would chop up the offering, and they would lay it on the altar that would be consumed by the fire of God, signifying that God accepts this offering that's cut in pieces, that God accepts it, uh, and the way He shows His acceptance is by the fire He pours out. They present the offering to God, and the priest takes that offering. And the priest was the mediator between man and God in the Old Testament, and they presented this offering on behalf of the people, and God, by His fire, consumes that offering. And the person that made the offering can't get it back. <laughs> it's gone. And it's not like, oh, it's gone, I want it back. No, they offered it unto the Lord. And in like manner, in this same token, in terms of offering our bodies, presenting our bodies, a living sacrifice, not a dead one, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, unto God because that offering that was offered even back then must be spotless it had to be a perfect offering without blemish no deformities nothing wrong with it it was a perfect sacrifice and all these ultimately the New Testament teaches us that all these were a picture of the perfect spotless lamb of God that was offered for you and I and in the same token, it has this idea now of presenting ourselves, every part, a whole offering unto the Lord.
And the idea of present here, the idea of surrendering, the idea of offering to God is the idea of once and for all. Have you heard this, anyone that's been in Christian circles for some times, have you ever heard anything like this? I surrendered my life to the Lord, but then I backslid. And then I surrendered to my life, again, my life to the Lord again, and then I backslid. And then I surrendered my life to the Lord again, and then I backslid. And, then I, and, and this is the story, right? This surrender, backslide, surrender, backslide, surrender, backslide, surrender, backslide. Now there's an element of truth where you come and get right with God. But what the scripture is teaching in Romans chapter 12, that when you present your body, you've presented it. It's not, I need to present it again. It's been presented. We, we can even relate it to the idea of a vow. When we've made a vow, God teaches us, you can't, you can't take it back. It's better that you do not vow than rather that you vow and do not pay it or that you do not fulfill it. And so the concept is similar here that the idea of present, the word indicates to us, it's not present and keep on presenting. It's just present it and it's done. It's a once and for all surrender. And this is what God desires of the brethren, of the children of God, that we would give him a once and for all surrender that God take my life and let it be consecrated all to thee. All to thee. We see this displayed in the salvation of Paul the Apostle. Who art thou, Lord? And when he knew it was the Lord Jesus Christ in, 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 in hand in hand with the salvation of Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 9, Paul says straight after that, Lord, what will you have me to do? You know what Paul's saying? Paul was the one that wrote these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, unto the Lord. It's set apart. We no longer yield ourselves. Like, turn with me to Romans chapter 6 if you're in the book of Romans. And I, was, I want us to see here in a very practical manner this yielding, as it were. Romans ch chapter 3. 4 and 5, particularly 4 and 5, have thoroughly established how we are made right. We have forgiveness of sins. We've been made clean by Jesus Christ, by that sacrifice, by the blood of His offering. We've been made clean. And in Romans chapter 6 now, it goes on to uh, to, to teach us now as a result of that we have been set free from the chains of sin we've been slaves to sin before we came to Jesus we've been imprisoned to sin before we received the mercies of God and Romans chapter 6 then establishes it from the very get-go saying what should we continue in sin from verse 1 that grace may abound? No, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? He's talking to the children of God. Now, I want us, I'm not going to go through every portion here, but I want us to notice verse 13. He says, uh, he says in, in, let's go back to verse, uh, let's actually just go back to verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, dieth no more. 
Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin. How many times? Just once. Once and for all. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise. Now he's saying like Jesus. Reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. But alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and as a result, he says this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. He's not saying it's not there anymore. He's just saying, don't let it reign anymore like it used to. Don't let it reign in your mortal bodies, these physical temporal bodies that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. You can say no to sin. Neither, look at this word, yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, each individual part, as instruments of righteousness unto God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. And it goes on to say it again. What then shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Notice verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were, past tense, the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of the flesh, for as ye have yielded, your members, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity. So like you used to give into sin in times past, he's saying now yield yourself. It's the same word actually for present yourself. Your members, servants to righteousness unto holiness. And so this is the concept of presenting your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God. That as I used to do what my sin nature told me to do, and I was doing that, living how I wanted to live, living after those very things that Jesus died for, He's saying, just like you used to give yourself over to that, just like you used to without thought present your bodies to do those things, he's saying, now that you've been set free from those things, now that you've been washed clean from those things, now that your account has been covered by the blood of Jesus and you've been made whiter than snow, you've been made a new creature in Christ Jesus, he says, now yield yourselves, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Now give yourself over once and for all to God for His glory. And he goes on to simply say, which is your reasonable service. It's just rational. It's just logic. 
Paul is actually using good old-fashioned logic here. Now, logic isn't always good, but it's not always wrong either. And so he is using logic here to say, having already established everything prior to this portion on the mercies of God and everything before that, then given the encouragement, present your bodies like you yielded yourselves before to wickedness and sin and so forth. Now that God set you free, he's, he's taken those chains off and he's, he's made you a free. You're not a you're not arrested to sin anymore. You've been made free. He's saying, but now yield your, your members to Him. Present your bodies to Him. Because you know what? It's just our reasonable service. It's only rational. It's only logical that we will yield, present our bodies once and for all on the basis of what He did in our ministry to God. And he says this in 2 Corinthians, if we turn there, chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. And he says this in verse uh, 15. Now you can uh, listen if you're not there, that's okay. And he says this, uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 14, excuse me. He says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. Because we thus judge, listen to this judgment, that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, and that's what Jesus did. And he says, and they which live. Who are they? Those that have been made alive by Jesus Christ. Ye who were dead in trespasses and sins, hath he quickened, made alive by the Spirit of God, by grace ye are saved. So they which lived, they which are saved in essence, should not henceforth here on out live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose Again, pure old-fashioned logic. If he died for me who, when I was dead, I was already dead, I was finished. He gave me life. He made me alive. And so it's only reasonable to give that life to him. I had no life and he gave me life. I thought I was living life, but I was living death. I was condemned, but He made me free and He gave me life. And Paul says that love, that mercy in essence that I received by the love of Jesus that was shed abroad in my heart by the Holy Ghost, that love that He died for me, that love now has arrested me. Not sin, but that love has constrained me, has arrested me. And this is my judgment. This is what I conclude that I was dead but he made me alive and so now that I'm alive I'm going to not live for myself any longer I'm not going to yield myself to those things that I used to yield myself to to my ways I'm going to yield it to him once and for all surrender and so this is when if you are far from God and need to get right it's not about uh, in essence, presenting your body again, it's simply coming back to the commitment you've already made, if you have made it. If you have made it. And if you have presented your body already to the Lord, God has not forgotten that, if you are a child of God. 
And if you are, have you have forgotten that commitment, or if you have departed from that commitment, then come back to the Lord and say, God, I remember that commitment and I want you to continue to have your way with me once and for all. Surrender. It's only reasonable. And then he goes on practically to say, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in chapter 2, in verse 2. Now I want us to turn to a few scriptures and first I want us to see in 1st Peter, <coughs> excuse me, 1st Peter chapter 1, 1st Peter chapter 1. Now this is in light, direct light of the holiness of God and from verse 13 it says this, Wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end. For the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter is towards the back of the Bible. If you go close towards the back of the Bible. Alright, perfect. 1 Peter chapter 1. And then if we look from verse 14. And he says this. So in chapter 1 from verse 14, and it says this, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as He which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, speaking of our lifestyle, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am. Am holy. Now I want us to notice something in verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves. This word fashioning is the exact same word in the Greek that's used in Romans chapter 12 to being conformed to this world. He does not want us to be conformed according to the former lusts. He does not want us to follow the fashions of our former lusts. He wants us to be holy as He is holy. And Romans chapter 12 is saying, don't be conformed to this world. Don't follow the fashion. Don't fashion yourself after the world. Because the Bible teaches us that God came to deliver us from this present evil world in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4 and God hates the system of the world so much not he's not talking about the people like he did in John chapter 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world talking about the people but God says in James chapter 4 concerning the world as its system He's saying, if anyone is a friend of the world, he is an enemy of God. You know why? Because the philosophy of this world is driving people away 
from what God teaches us. And the philosophy and the teachings of the system of this world are fueled and are set up by the little g, God of this world, referring to the devil. And the Bible teaches us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the little g, God of this world, referring to the devil, has blinded people from hearing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, from seeing the light that will set them free from darkness. And He's the one that is set up all this system. He's the one that set up all this philosophy that has set the world in a direction that the Bible says is a wide path that leads to destruction. Wide path that leads to destruction. So as the child of God... The encouragement is, is don't fashion yourself anymore according to that teaching. And this is why it goes on to say, but be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Of your mind. Renovate your mind. Renovate this, this mind is in connection in scripture with the inner man. I want us to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and I want us to just see this in Ephesians chapter 4 it talks about from verse 17 and even before that how the Gentiles are lost and walked in ignorance just like Peter was talking about the former lusts of our ignorance and it says in verse from verse 17 this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth from here on out Walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. You've been strangers to this through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ. In other words, if you know something about Jesus, there is no connection with Jesus and this kind of living. And he goes on, verse 21. He says, If so be, that ye have heard of Him and have been taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. And he goes on to say that ye put off concerning the former conversation lifestyle, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed, renovated in the spirit of your mind. And that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. And this is the connection that we see with being renewed in the mind. and But the, renew, the renovating of the mind that God wants to, 
us to give ourselves over, not to the old person that lived in sin, but to the new person that's now alive in Jesus Christ. And Jesus does not teach us to live a life of sin. And Jesus does not teach us to accept sin and to condone sin and to continue in sin. He tells us to put those things away and don't follow that mindset anymore. Don't follow those lusts anymore. Give yourselves over to renovate that kind of mind by the new man. And the new man teaches me to love God and hate sin. And the new man teaches me to forsake the old way and to continue in the new way. It teaches me to think like God does and not like the world does. Because the philosophy of the world teaches us it's all about you. When God teaches us if you go after what's all about you, you're going to end up destroying yourself. But if you go after what's all about me, you're going to find life and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And the philosophy of the world says you can have the good life now. And you know what the good life is? Go and live it up. Go and fornicate. Go and get drunk. Hey, life is short, so live it up while you're young because you might die young. So go and enjoy life. And what they deem to be life is lust. Go and enjoy sin is what they're saying. Go and destroy your morals. Go and ruin your purity. Go and live in regret. They don't present it like that because that's presenting it as it is. And if it was presented in its true light, we'd say that's disgusting. So they cloud it with words like, no, it's life. It's fun. I'm just having a good time. I'm not hurting anyone, but we are. We're breaking the heart of God. We're going after the system that's been set up by the devil who's an enemy of God. That's why God says don't go after the world. Don't follow the fashions of the world. I want you to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I want you to be holy. I want you to be pure. I want you to go after those things that are good and acceptable, things that are pleasing in the sight of God, not an abomination to Him. And this is what Ephesians talks about that we have by Christ Jesus our Lord. And I want us to turn over to the next book is Philippians after Ephesians. And then after Philippians is Colossians. And I want us to notice this in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 10. Uh, before verse 10, uh, look at this. Let's go from verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Okay, listen to this. Fornication. Uncleanness. Inordinate affections, these are unbridled lusts, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, but now, verse 8, ye also put off all these, 
anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, speaking of Jesus Christ. The mindset of Christ is different to the mindset of the world. And God wants us to renovate our minds. There's in Ephesians it talks about, and it's in the context of being made holy, and it says that God is going to sanctify us, that God is going to cleanse us by the washing of water by the Word of God. And in John chapter 17, when Jesus was praying to the Father, He says, sanctify them, make them holy by thy truth, Thy word is truth. And one of the direct ways that we see of renovating our minds is by the word of God. Because when I start to get in this book, you know what this book starts to do? It starts to show me what the world's philosophy is and it starts to show me what God's philosophy is and what that is doing is I am sanding back that old paint that's there and I'm applying that new fresh coat that God wants me to put on. I'm going to rip off that broken down uh, cabinet and I'm putting a brand new cabinet there and so this is what's happening when I read the word of God those things that I thought was uh, was okay God is showing me was not okay anymore for example who doesn't fornicate today it's a very normal thing to try before you buy right and if it doesn't work out just go to the next and if that doesn't work out just go to the next to find what's best for you because you you, you want to live a happy life and a good life. But God says, no. Sex before marriage is fornication. And He says in 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. And amongst the list of fornicators and many other things, drunkards and adulterers, adulterers and many other things, He says, these kinds of people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So don't be deceived to think I can do those things and be a Christian. That's the philosophy of the world. And he says, if you have a lifestyle of that, then most likely you are not a child of God, but a child of disobedience. And what the Word of God teaches me, it goes so far as to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when I read this standard, it made no sense to me. Because of how I was raised as a lost man. And in 1 Corinthians chapter says, It's good for a man not to touch a woman. And it goes on to say in the context of, If you're burning, then marry. Because in marriage, he wants the marriage bed undefiled. 
That's God's design, that this would be had in marriage. Not that you would leave a part of yourself with so many guys and so many girls and live with so much regret and so many memories. That's not God's design. That's the way of the world. But the way of God is saying, I want it to be pure. I want it to be undefiled. I want it to be one man and one woman as Till death do you part and I want it to be something that you share one with another and I want to use that ordinance as a picture of Christ's union with the church. The way of the world versus the way of Christ. One is adulterated and polluted, the other is pure and good. And I learn these things, even though I don't get it, I am renovating my mind so that I start to think and live how God wants me to live. There is a false Christianity around there today that says you can do what you want as long as you give to God as well. But what I see in Romans chapter 12 as we've been looking at, that's not what God says. As a matter of fact, what I see what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 6 and elsewhere, even, and he teaches this, you cannot serve God and money. You can't have two masters. You can't have your way and God's way. Just like those that want darkness, that want their sin, this is why I say you can't have your sin and the Saviour. If it's dark, it's dark. But the moment we turn the light on, the darkness can't come over the light. The light overcomes the darkness. You can't have both. The light prevails and the light will always shine. And so you can't have your way and God's way. And when God is saying, come and present yourself, you can't leave one hand out and give the rest. You're presenting the whole body. You're presenting the whole self to God, the mind, the will. And when it's talking about the mind, it's in connection with our emotions. It's in connection with the free will of man that I want to submit these things to God because I want God to work in me those things that are pleasing to Him. I want to, Him to work in me, like Philippians says, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. This is what Romans chapter 12 is encouraging us in. Once and for all, surrender, but in such a way that is acceptable in the sight of God. And that's by the Spirit of God, which is received at salvation. There's no other way to please God. The Scriptures teach us that we cannot please God. But you know who can? The Son. You know who can? The Spirit of Holiness. And this is why He has ordained it that the children of God are never to do anything in their own strength in the arm of the flesh, but by the Spirit of God, because by Him He does all things that please the Father, like Jesus says. The Spirit of God teaches us to live in all goodness and peace and joy and righteousness all of this is found by the spirit of god and so this is what god has called every child of god to live under 
He says that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If you are not saved and if you are not surrendered, then you have a lack of discernment and will lack in be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Will of God. The scriptures teach us that He's given us the Word of God to make us perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We see this in the scriptures, that He wants us to do all things that are acceptable in the sight of God. And the only way to do that is by the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God. And you know what, one thing that's very clear in the scripture, just to come back to this conclusion. Two things I want to close off with, and one is this. In concluding this point here, you will never be able to perfectly discern what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God if you do not present your bodies a living sacrifice and if you are not renovating your mind, renewing your mind in this book and by the inner man in connection with the Spirit of God, you will never be able to discern these four things. And once you come to that place and give yourself over to them as the picture of an offering is, it's given over. It's given over. A living sacrifice, not a dead one, a living one. Then you'd be able to prove these things. And one thing concerning the will of God. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3, it says, this is the will of God for you. In connection with sanctification, he says that ye abstain from fornication. Because this was a people that lived a lifestyle of it, that it was acceptable. And there are many other things found in the will of God, especially for the people of God, that we would discover if only we would renovate our minds in the Word of God. But one scripture that also clings to my heart as to what the will of God is, and it is this. Second Peter, we'll turn there and we'll close here. This will be the last verse. Second Peter chapter 3. And verse 9, again towards the end of the book there. Second Peter chapter 3. And I want us to notice verse 9. The Lord is not slack... Concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. And if you don't fully understand that, that's okay. This is the part I really want you to get. But is long suffering to us would, notice these words, not willing, not willing 
that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know what the will of God is for every person on earth? He does not want, He does not will, He does not desire that anyone on earth should perish, should die in their sin and end up in hell, a place that God never intended and created for man. The Bible teaches us it was created for the devil and his angels, but because he deceived Eve and Adam disobeyed God, we were born in sin and therefore born condemned as it were. This is why Jesus came into this world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved because he is not willing that any should perish for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance and if you're here with us this morning and you have not come to repentance, like that publican who could not so much as lift up his eyes toward heaven like we read in Luke chapter 18, but bowed his eyes toward the ground, and he says, God, beat upon his breast. You know what this is? This isn't just, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not a formula. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not a formula. If you would come and believe with all your heart on Jesus Christ and Him only to save you from your sin, He doesn't want to condemn you in your sin. He wants to give you mercy. He wants to give you life. He wants to save you from it. He is not willing that you would perish in your sin. He does not want you to die in your sin. He wants you to come to Him that you would have life. That's what Jesus wants for you. He doesn't want to hurt you. He wants to help you. He doesn't want to destroy your life. He wants to give you life. That's why He came all the way from heaven to do that. And He invites you to come to repentance. You know what this means? He was done. Oh God! He was finished. It's a sign of distress. I'm done. I'm finished. Have you ever been to that place in absolute anguish? Where something has broken your heart so much that you felt so helpless and and you've been you've been so vulnerable even as it were and sometimes you go oh I don't know if you know what I'm talking about it's a sign of anguish it's a sign of I'm done it's a sign of what do I do I'm, it's I'm, this is what he's doing in Luke 18 God be merciful to me a sinner that's all I am. I don't have anything to offer you. But you know what the devil says? No, you've done some good things. You weren't like him. No. I'm a sinner. That's all he had in his mind. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. 
And if you would come to Jesus this morning, I can't convince you of your sin. And I can't help you to see how God sees sin. But God simply concludes the whole matter that we have sinned. And there is no sin that is accepted into heaven. That's why God died for it. Because He is offering us mercy. Because there's coming a day where justice will be poured out. The wages of sin will be given to man. But God doesn't want us to receive those wages. He wants us to receive mercy. Mercy. Would you come to Jesus to be saved? But you can't hold anything back. Whatever it is, Lord, you know. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, you will be saved. If you would call on Jesus to save you, the Bible says, you shall be saved. But no holding back from Him. 